0: So we've been trudging through Ecclesiastes, um, <laughs> and it's, it's been hard. And, um, uh, I know for myself, I've, I've had to think a lot about the things that I assumed um, really gave meaning to my life, but in actuality, um, there is only God, and only serving Him, um, so uh, today we're in Ecclesiastes four verses seven through sixteen. Will you follow along as I as I read? <clears throat> Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, "For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure?" This also is vanity. a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice, for he went from prison to the throne. Through Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor, I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth... Who was to stand in the king's place? There is no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely, this also is vanity and striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord.
1: You pray with me uh, one more time as we uh, approach this word. Lord, uh, we have prayed over and over again this morning that you would be with us, and uh, this is one of the ways that you have told us that you are with us through your word. And so I pray that uh, that you would be with us this morning, that my speaking would be your speaking, that these words... Uh, through the work of your spirit this morning would become life for us, real life, that we would be set free from that which is not life. Lord, may uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. Amen. Uh, So the book of Ecclesiastes is... uh, What's called one of the wisdom books in the Old Testament, it is uh, a collection of wisdom, in this case probably by Solomon, uh, that Solomon uh, was uh, around for quite a while and saw quite a few things. And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, uh, molded that experience and wisdom into a book of wisdom for us. Uh, it does oftentimes have a tendency to feel a little depressing because uh, he's very realistic about the way the world is, uh, sometimes cynical. Uh, last Sunday, the passage basically said, hey, look, the world's an unjust place. It's always been an unjust place. It's always going to be an unjust place. Uh, but I think for us, uh, really, Ecclesiastes can have the function of, of setting us free uh, of owning the way the world is and finding our place in it. And I hope it will do that for us this morning as well. Uh, so this passage that Joel just read is really just three illustrations stacked on top of each other. It's as if Solomon is preaching a sermon and now he's, he's throwing out illustrations to sort of build up and highlight his case. And so I want to try and uh, preach a sermon this morning that might be a little bit different in the sense that uh, if the text is just illustrations, uh, then maybe I think the best thing for us to do is to go with the form we've been given and just soak in these pictures and illustrations to, to turn them about and uh, comp- contemplate them, uh, meditate on them, and see what they may mean uh, for us. I'm going to take them out of order. Uh, We're going to start with the last one first. The last illustration is that last paragraph in your worship folder. Uh, Or if you want to find it in your Bibles, it's uh, right in the middle, just after Psalms and Proverbs, uh, beginning in Ecclesiastes 4.13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. So we've got two characters in our story, in our illustration here. We've got a poor man uh, who's got no connections, none of the things that would have been prized in Solomon's world. No money, uh, no status, no position. He's just just poor. It alludes later that perhaps he might have even been in debtor's prison. Uh, He doesn't have any of the wisdom that comes with age. He's just a poor young guy, uh, but yet wise. And the other character is uh, an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Uh, but this guy, he does have, he's got the connections, uh, the power, he's got the age that would have been respected, certainly the money, uh, but his highlighting character is he no longer knows how to take advice. And Solomon says, look, it would be better for this young poor guy to be, to be king. For when he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor, I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with the youth who was to stand in the king's place. And there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. So it's a a two-part story. What happens in the first part is this young wise, poor youth moves from the poor slums all the way up to the throne, that somehow the old guy that doesn't know how to take advice anymore, he's tossed out, and the new guy comes in, and and you can barely even number all of the people he's ruling over. He has that much power. Yes! This is the good part of the story, that, that something good has happened, that we got the old bad guy out of the way, and the young guy is here. Change and hope are here this is going to be a good time for the nation and then the next word is yet yet those who come later will not rejoice in him surely this also is vanity in striving after wind so there's there's the second part of the story, that, that even though we had this old foolish king and we replaced him with a young king, you know what? 20 years are going to go by, and no one's going to remember the old guy. No one's going to remember how great the young guy is. No one will care. He'll get pushed out to, and a couple generations later, no one will even remember him. That's uh, illustration number one. He sums it up. Surely this also is vanity. And a striving after wind. Uh, I think Todd and Brandon have both pointed out that this word vanity uh, shows up in Ecclesiastes over and over and over again. It's a theme word. Uh, It's very difficult to translate. Vanity is a pretty good stab at it. Uh, Another word you could use is absurd. Basically, saying, "This, This is what happens, and it's totally absurd. It's dumb, but it's the way that it is. He says, striving after wind. The striving word can also mean shepherding. So the image is, it's like a shepherd gathering up sheep, except he's really just gathering up little puffs of wind. Hey, come here, come here. Just this totally useless exercise. Uh, in this case, to, uh, to ascend, to establish a kingdom, and to establish anything permanent or lasting, any name or reputation uh, on a permanent basis. Uh, to, to add some extra teeth or a little detail into this image this is a Solomon is sort of painting a generic image this is something he's seen he sort of is implying I've actually seen it over and over again this is, this is the way of things uh, and so just to add some gravity to the situation uh, I wanted to ask how many of you know that we once had a president by the name of James A. Garfield go ahead, show of hands I know we've got some history buffs out there can, can go ahead, shout it out. Does anyone know when James A. Garfield was president? <laughs>
0: uh,
1: he was elected in the fall of 1880. Uh, James A. Garfield is noteworthy for a number of reasons. One, because he is the last president who went from a log cabin to the White House. James A. Garfield was born in a log cabin. In Cuyahoga County, Ohio. Both of his parents passed away before he had turned two. He was raised by family members and somehow he worked his way through college. He uh, worked on a canal in Ohio, which means that he pulled a horse, he guided a horse team that was pulling a barge in a canal and earned money that way uh, to go through college. He fought in the Civil War. And shortly thereafter was uh, nominated and elected to Congress as a representative of the state of Ohio in the period after the Civil War. Uh, He was a champion of civil rights, uh, fought against corruption, uh, and one of his more famous quotes, he said that he had seen over and over again his friends become consumed with desire and power to become president of the United States, and that it had changed and ruined so many of his friends. And he was committed to not running for that office uh, because he did not want to be overcome uh, by that desire for power. Uh, Now, I know some of you are getting cynical on me already because uh, he did end up being president. And let me tell you how. Uh, The campaign uh, for uh, nomination, for the Republican nomination for president in the summer of 1880, Uh, went a lot like what we're currently seeing. Uh, There were three guys, uh, all front-runners, contenders uh, in various uh, primary elections, gathering up delegates and what happened uh, is what may happen this year, if we're not careful, is that they arrived at the Republican convention uh, that fall with three guys who all had a lot of delegates but none of whom had enough delegates for the nomination. Uh, So what happens in that case, uh, you political junkies will know this, you get what's called a brokered convention, and uh, all bets are off, and the delegates at the convention start voting amongst themselves about which one of these guys is going to get the nomination of the party. And so they have a vote, and if no one gets a majority, they vote again. And if no one gets a majority, they vote again, and meanwhile horse trading and jockeying around is going on behind the scenes, and hopefully somebody can amass enough votes and eventually get the nomination. And 30 ballots later, uh, they were not even close to anyone having a majority, Uh, when finally uh, a representative from Wisconsin stood up and said, Hey, we all know James Garfield. He's a great guy. We can't decide on these three jokers. What what if we just nominated him instead? And four ballots later, James A. Garfield, without ever having run or sought the office of presidency, had in hand the nomination of the Republican Party to be president and won in the fall. Uh, One of the first initiatives he pushed through uh, was uh, a try at nationalized, um, federally mandated education. Uh, that everyone in the country would go to school, which was not yet the case. Uh, and his reason for this was, in the South, the vast majority of African Americans could not yet read. And so pushing for uh, national education would be perhaps one way to help educate the African Americans in the South. Uh, and so he uh, started working on those. He uh, cleaned out corruption in the post office. Uh, he is, I think, a good picture of the young, wise man having worked his way uh, from the log cabin into the White House. Uh, does anyone remember how the Garfield presidency ended? Uh, yeah, uh, less than 200 days after having been inaugurated, uh, James Garfield met in a railway station a man who had sought uh, nomination as an ambassador to France, and uh, the president had not given it to him because he did not have any qualifications for such office, Uh, and so he shot the president uh, in the railway station, and uh, a few weeks later, he passed away. And so uh, the tragedy of the story is twofold. One, uh, that this uh, great man barely had the chance to be president, uh, but perhaps more importantly for us, that uh, none of us remember him that most of that uh, is completely unknown to all of us, myself included, before I started looking into this. Uh, I think what Solomon is wanting to do with a picture like this is to uh, painfully, but hopefully lovingly, go ahead and pop the bubble uh, of personal ambition ahead of time. Uh, It's not that mission isn't important. It's not that what uh, President Garfield was trying to do was important. It's that... Uh, if his goal, if our goal is to establish a kingdom of our own, some sort of lasting reputation, uh, something that will survive the ages, that it is that uh, is a fool's errand. Um, the, the great uh, distinction is, uh, is to ask ourselves why why it is that we are building. And seeking after what it is that we are building and seeking after the, the temptation uh, for us by our very nature and especially by our culture is so powerful that uh, most of us on some level, I'm convinced, have some kingdom we are hard at work on that is probably some mixture of, of good motives and not so good motives. Whether it's uh, building a church, whether it's planting churches, whether it's uh, attaining the next rank. Uh, whether it's having the best most perfect home on the block uh, these are are good things uh, but depending on how we approach them uh, they, will, they will not give us <clears throat> uh, what what we're looking for uh, I'm going to move on and take a look at the next illustration um, let me take a look at the first one in the text beginning in verse 7 Solomon says again I saw Vanity. I saw something completely absurd under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So here's the picture. This is a lonely guy. This is, this is a one-off person. Uh, the Hebrew text literally says, Behold, one, one and no second, either brother or son. So this is, this is someone with no close personal connections, yet there is no end to all their toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, as if, as if his eyes were hungry, as if they were eating, 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 riches, power, money, but never, we're never full, it's never enough. So that, in other words, because of this, he never stops to ask, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Why am I doing this? What is the point of all of this? This also is absurd and an unhappy business. Uh, I've mentioned here before that uh, I was a music major in college. Uh, I was a French horn performance major and a music education major, but what I didn't tell very many people at the time and still don't often admit to people is what I really wanted to be was not a high school band conductor, uh, not even a professional French horn player. What I wanted to be was a professional conductor. Uh, if I got to make a Wish Foundation wish, that'd probably still be my wish to get 60 minutes in front of uh, a symphony orchestra. Uh, at that point, music was the most profound, enriching, deep, exciting experience uh, that I had found. And I couldn't think of anything better than getting to be. The man who gets to stand up front in front of all those musicians and guide and shape the sound for all those people listening out there. And so I set into my college studies with zeal. Uh, Like most intense music majors, I arose at 5.30 a.m. every morning my freshman year of college so that I could get an hour of warm-up in before my first 8 a.m. class so that my next practice time would be more effective before lunch and then more practice after that. Do you know that most symphony musicians and concert folks spend between 7 and 10 hours a day in a practice room? (laughs) Uh, It's uh, an intense calling. Uh, I was at the University of Arizona at the time in Tucson, Arizona. And the Tucson Symphony has a student program where if you show up uh day of the concert at Symphony Hall with a photo ID, you can get a ticket for $4. And so when I was not in the practice room, I took up residence in the balcony of Tucson Symphony Hall. And one fall, I rode my bike across town because I was a poor college student. Chained it up outside of Symphony Hall, and got my four dollar ticket to sit up in the balcony and listen to the Tucson Symphony perform Beethoven Symphony Number no. Four. It was amazing. Afterwards, uh, I left the Symphony Hall and was standing on the large concrete plaza outside the hall, uh, chatting with other music students talking about the grandeur of music and Beethoven 4 and that great moment at the end of the introduction when the first theme comes in and we were talking and talking and talking while all the symphony patrons trickled out the door, passed us on their way home. And then after them, the symphony musicians trickled out Uh, And then after them, the folks that actually work in Symphony Hall had finished cleaning up the trash and turned off the lights, and they walked out and were still talking, talking, talking in the dark plaza. And then finally, one last person came out of the Symphony Hall. The last person to come out was George Hanson himself, conductor of the Tucson Symphony Orchestra, and he walked right past us on his way to his car. Uh, Now... If you think musicians are intense, conductors are more intense. I do not know why, but most conductors hold down multiple conducting jobs with multiple orchestras, usually on more than one continent. Uh, it's certainly not a mush- money issue because they get paid a lot. I, they, this, just, this is just what they do. This is the way this world works. Uh, George Hansen was the artistic director and chief conductor of the Tucson Symphony Orchestra and the Anchorage Symphony and an opera somewhere in Germany. The man probably spent more time on airplanes than he did home. Uh, and then, as the glow of this man passed by, uh, a moment happened that changed my life uh, forever. It one of these split moments where you see something that you will never forget that instantaneously changes the course of your life. And what happened as I was contemplating this majestic position that this man had as I suddenly remembered that I had seen in the back corner of the newspaper the week before a little snippet of news saying that uh, George Hansen's wife had just uh, filed for divorce and she was leaving with their children, uh, I'm sure because she never got to see him. Uh, and I remembered this immediately after he walked by, and then I had this flash thought. I said, I thought to myself, 30 minutes ago, this man was standing on the podium with a hundred of the finest musicians in front of him playing the finest music and thousands of people at his back watching his every move and applauding him for minutes on end. And now he is walking out of the concert hall by himself. And he is going to get in his car by himself and drive to his apartment by himself. And what will he do then? Will he put in a CD and listen to more music or have a bottle of wine with some cheese or just watch a movie and go to bed by himself, I do not know. But that is not the life that I want and uh, I didn't give up on music in that moment Uh, and I I still think it's a good calling Uh, but I knew in that moment that if I was gonna make it in music it would not be that way, that that was not worth it for me Uh, and that I think is what Solomon wants us to see in this illustration, is that, uh, that it is so easy to get caught up in success and longing after power or position or status or the next biggest move for our business to make uh, or, <clears throat> or whatever it is, uh, and that if we lose sight of relationships, of the moment, of the people around us, that we have lost sight of. The most important thing in the text, the key is that he's so busy with with the next thing, with the next business deal, with the next concert, with the next office to open up in the next town, that he never stops to ask himself, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? I think the question is really twofold. Why am I doing this? But also, it very explicitly says, for whom, it implies that there ought to be someone. Uh, I told Todd before the service that this passage uh, feels to me a little bit like a Hallmark card. uh, That as a Protestant pastor, I'm used to preaching about the mission. Team, go! Participate in the mission! Build the kingdom! Uh, And that's true, I'm not recanting that, but this, this passage is a helpful check. It says, hey, yes build the mission but really go ahead and spend some time with your family. Uh, Go home at five. uh, Make dinner. That at at the end of your life uh, you will have been better served by just having had time with your family uh, than building the next biggest whatever that twenty years from now who knows if it will be around or if people will remember. Uh, I know that um, that many of you Uh, especially in our day and age, feel many pressures uh, piled on. A friend of mine discovered an Atlantic Weekly article recently that talked about how for men, especially a generation ago, sort of when you're a guy, you sort of worked, you worried about what was going on at work. And when you're a woman, you worried about what was going on at home. And now in our generation, uh, if you're a woman, you worry about what's going on with your marriage and your home and your kids. And if you're a man... You get to worry about what's going on at the office and the next thing coming up and the project and the TPS report with the cover sheet and the memo. And you also get to worry about the house and the lawn and the kids and the grade, their grades and your marriage, that all of that stuff is on our shoulders. Uh, and I think what Solomon wants us to do is to not give up work but we have got to learn how to put it in the box. Not to put our family or our personal life in the box, but to put work in its place. Um, I think we can do that by asking a few questions. Uh, First of all, if you're married, uh, your spouse gets a say. Uh, In fact, I know that, uh, that many of you here are lawyers, doctors, uh, military folks, teachers, careers that demand, by necessity, a tremendous amount of time. Uh, And that's not wrong, but you've got to be able to ask these questions. One, is my spouse on board with the amount of time that I am spending in the office or building the whatever, because she gets a say, it's what the Bible says. Uh, Secondly, why really am I doing this? Uh, what, is, what is my motivation? Uh, and I'm going to go ahead and answer the question for you. That uh, if you're honest, I think the motivation is almost always going to be some funky mixture of really good motives and not so good motives. That the thing set before us, I preached a couple weeks ago about God's mission and how your work matters. And, and yes, military folks, you're keeping us all safe. That's really important. Doctors, you're keeping us healthy. Teachers, you're keeping us educated, watching out for our kids. These things are really important. Those are good motives. Todd and I are excited about serving you and planting churches. Those are are good motives. But almost always mixed in there is this funk that subtly comes with it of, and how awesome would it be if a generation from now, people know that Nathaniel was the guy that helped establish new PCA churches in Hawaii. No honest pastor will tell you that he wants to be the pastor that pastors the small church. Uh, this, uh, I'll be honest, this passage, I wasn't expecting it to get me, and it got me. I'm a kind of a layback guy, I'm a pastor. I did not go into the ministry because it came with power and money and recognition. Nobody cares about pastors in our day. And yet, as I've thought this through, I've realized, one, yes, that there is a part of me that would love to be the man that accomplishes something great. And perhaps uh, even more important for me in thinking this through, I've realized, uh, and I share this with you because I hope this helps you ask these sorts of questions about yourself, uh, is that uh, Susie and I are pregnant, Uh, we're expecting our second child in July, and I've realized that yes, Yes, I am excited about baby number two, but if I was to be honest, I think I'm less excited than I was last time. Uh, partly because, I've second baby, but partly because I have been so busy thinking about the church that I have not fully taken the time to emotionally engage with the fact that I have a person that's my child on the way. Uh, that this This passage has been a great one for me, that at the end of the day, yes, I'm here to serve, and yes, I'm here to daydream about planting churches and building the kingdom, but at the end of the day, if I'm not able to go home and have dinner with my family and know that I've got connection with them, that whatever happens in the church, that I'm okay because I'm soaking up and enjoying the life that I have now that I have totally missed out and what's more important that they have totally missed out uh, that uh, many of you I think are perhaps facing this, this danger um, I used um, the illustration of marriage and children over and over again uh, and perhaps that's not the best because many of you aren't married but you have relationships in your life that are important that you need to make time for um some of you guys do spend lots of, lots of time with your family, you're well-balanced, and I'll just go ahead and say, this passage is not the passage for you. This passage is for those of us who do have relationships and who might not, if we don't slow down, uh, that if you are working 80 hours a week, stop it. Just stop it. It's not, it's not worth it. Um, at the end of the day, remember, we talked about your kingdom versus the Lord's kingdom. And really, if if I'm about building churches, well, who's the one that's really going to build churches here? Well, it's Jesus. And he can do it with or without me. It kind of doesn't matter on some level whether I'm here. And so it's okay for me to stop at the end of the day and go home. And ultimately, it's Jesus' responsibility to make sure that we all stay safe and healthy. And, uh, and these are things that we can give over to him to help him guide us and put our motivation and our career in its box. Uh, I think this is... Well, let's take a look at the final picture here, and then we'll close. Beginning in verse 9, Solomon says, "...two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow." But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold, cold, three-fold cord is not quickly broken. Uh, that last phrase there about the cord, um, it's just a quick aside. That the, uh, the exact same phrase occurs in uh, a Sumerian epic from around the same period, a little bit before. Uh, and so we don't know, but it's entirely possible that uh, Solomon is just quoting a line that everyone would be abundantly familiar with. That he's saying, uh, Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Look, you guys know this, remember? A threefold cord is not easily broken. Uh, so he's sort of pulling at the things that that they know. Uh, My tendency at this point would be to say, hey, look, find meaning in the Lord and in Him. And I think that's true, uh, and that is a good sermon. But quite honestly, what Solomon says is, look, really what it's about is it's about relationships. Um, We saw the king who arose and then faded away we saw the working one who had no one in his life, and this, and the, oftentimes Hebrews kind of put the crux in the middle, and I think that's what we may have done here. Hey, look, two is better than one. That at the end of the day, uh, don't waste your time on building this kingdom if you're not. Don't do it alone. That uh, the relationships, uh, whether spouse or extended family or friends or children, that those those matter, uh, and that if we are so consumed. Uh, by our personal mission, that we are not able to enjoy the reality of what is now, uh, that we are missing out. We only have so many years, uh, and this this is what's been given to us. Um, I think this is what the Apostle Paul means in the New Testament when he says to urge Christians to live a quiet and peaceful life. What business does Paul have saying that? He's the guy who's marching all over the world converting churches, But this is where I think those things harmonize, that while he's doing that, while he's preaching, he's still maintaining a quiet and peaceful life. That at the end, whether or not the kingdom gets built is kind of not on his shoulders. He's going to go work, and then he's going to go home, and he's going to spend time with Prisca and Aquila, and he's going to make some tents. It's going to be great. It's going to be a great day. I think this is the freedom that the Lord is inviting us to. To in the midst of our working and striving and mission is just the simple joys of going home at the end of the day and leaving the rest with Him and enjoying the life that we've been given. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word uh, for Psalm, and I pray that you would um, apply it to us today. Set us free from the kingdom of self. Uh, let us pass that over to you. At the end of the day, you are the only one that gets the glory. Um, give us rest, Lord. Give us relationships. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.